Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to part two of our coverage of Eleanor of Aquitaine. When we left Eleanor in part one, the king and queen of France had called it quits. They certainly were personally incompatible, we know that, but more importantly, Eleanor had not produced a son, an heir to the kingdom of France, and so their marriage was annulled in March of 1152 when Eleanor was about 30. So little did old King Louis know that Eleanor had a plan, one that she had put in place as far back as last August, I mean, more than half a year ago, and the second Louis's back crossed the horizon, it was a go. She had husband two lined up already. And now you and I might be prone to tell a recently divorced friend, you know, find yourself. Take some time. Get your groove back, Stella. But if you think about it, <laughs> once word got out that Eleanor's lands were up for grabs again, it would be the worst sort of game of capture the flag. And who's the flag? Eleanor's the flag. She was the richest woman in Europe. She had so much property. And while she was capable of ruling it by herself, she couldn't. Society wouldn't allow it. And all a noble had to do was kidnap her and marry her. And it's all his. So yeah, she was in danger from the second she signed that annulment paper. And in fact, on the way back to the safety, relative safety, of Poitiers, she narrowly escaped two kidnapping attempts by enterprising no woman. I mean, how many kidnappings can one woman endure? I just do not know. <laughs> Wait, what about that one guy? That one guy at Antioch? You know, fancy pants with the oranges and the fountains? The uncle? No. I'm sorry to say that Uncle Raul is unavailable. He's not an option because his head is on a spike on a bridge. So Ooh. what I'm saying is he's dead. <laughs> well, I hope that would be dead because it would be really painful if he was still alive. <laughs> So, so hurry, hurry, she wrote to the lucky man in question, uh, with all haste, you know, come marry me. Super romantic. And so with all medieval haste, months later. Two months. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it took him a while to put his gear together and his people and travel down to Poitiers for where she was. So Henry, Duke of Normandy, and Eleanor, Duchess of Aquitaine, were married with no pomp, no circumstance, in secret. Well, at least on the super down low. <laughs> okay, so Henry, who's this guy, you know, and what's with all this cloak and dagger stuff? Aren't you supposed to be free? Well, well, do you remember back, way back in part one, when I mentioned that the poor old king of England had tried to secure his property to his daughter Matilda, and he made his nobles swear loyalty to her, but the second he died, it was open season, and her cousin Stephen took the throne of England. Well, Fast forward some years here. And Matilda, let's call her Empress Matilda, because everyone did. She mm -hmm. had three sons. And the eldest of these, that's Henry. Often called Henry Fitz Empress, or Henry of Anjou, or the Duke of Normandy, or, hey, now this is going to be familiar, Henry Plantagenet. <laughs> well, yeah, that was his father. His father was Geoffrey the Fair, Count of Anjou, Touraine, and men. He used to put a broom flower in his hat because he was a Depper fellow. It was called the Plantagenista is the name of the flower, and that got dropped down to Plantagenet, which we all know. Now, if you follow the modern convention, like we're used to in our calm modern days of, you know, the eldest legitimate boy inherits the throne if there's no boys, the eldest girl. I mean, that's exactly how Queen Elizabeth, the current Queen Elizabeth, and frankly, the first one, actually, now that I think about it, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we ourselves would see Matilda as the rightful queen, 
And so her oldest son, Henry, then would be the rightful heir to the crown of England. That's linear. What's the problem? But in medieval times, it was more like he that can take it can keep it, which is the root of so much of the problems that are going to come up in this episode. I'm just telling you right now. Which, which is why Matilda wasn't in England ruling and why there was a civil war going on because she should have been there and Stephen, her cousin, had taken the position. So war broke out. And it has been going on for all of Henry's life. Well, and it's so bad there that under King Stephen, this period of time is called the anarchy, which sounds like a terrible thing. If you're an average Joe in England, can you imagine raising your children during a period called the anarchy? Mm -hmm. But Matilda's son was now a man, a young man of 18, but he, he has some skills. He's a good leader. He's a warrior who's gearing up to take his crown back. And here's the thing. I can only imagine that he was brought up his whole life with the story of the stolen kingdom. Oh yeah, just think about what happened at your family's Thanksgiving dinner when Uncle Wallace took the, your dead grandfather's watch that was supposed to go to you. Family wars break out over something so minor. This is major. Both his parents were militarily very brilliant. You know, he's learning from both sides. So we say he's only 18, but he was nothing like Louis was at 18 at all. So you be ready, King Stephen. Is what we're saying. Be ready. I don't know about winter is coming because, in fact, it's the summer, but the hammer's coming. <laughs> Let's just say that. Okay, so Eleanor picked a good one. A man on the rise, for sure. And for his part, her land and her resources might just have given him the golden ticket to achieve his life and his mother's life's whole ambition. I mean, it is kind of hard not to be grateful and think fondly of a woman who made that possible. And so even though this started out as a business arrangement, there was quite the mutual physical attraction. I I think so. I, I When I was reading about Henry, I thought he was um, kind of like a really complex character. He was well-educated and he spoke all the French dialects. He understood English and Italian. He was literate and articulate and articulate, but he had a way of talking that people could understand what he was saying. He didn't dumb it down and he wasn't uh, always pompous about it, <laughs> but uh, he was a very good, uh, <laughs> which is funny because I can't find the word. <laughs> I like how you stumbled over the word articulate and I think I'm going to leave it in. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you, this is actually funny right now because he was a very good communicator is actually the word I was trying to find in my head. <laughs> Well, King Louis, for his part, back in France, was infuriated. I mean, like, number one, the haste here smacked of pre-planning. Like, this arrangement had been made while he and Eleanor were married, you think? Yeah. It was probably made while Henry and his father were in Paris. They were called there by Louis on a diplomatic mission. And so that's probably when these things started. So it happened under Louis's nose, and they got married without asking his permission, which they should have done because he was their king. But anybody can tell he's certainly not going to give permission for these two to marry. Their territory would be ginormous. Better to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> That's right. So Louis demanded that they come explain themselves, which sounds like a trap. I wouldn't know either, which is why they didn't go. And in fact, Henry was getting ready to head over to England with an army to take care of that business when word came that King Louis, so angry at number one, being embarrassed, you know, he said, Henry of Normandy basically stole my wife. You know what? He didn't. You let her go. 
chump. Whatever. <laughs> and number two, being disregarded as an overlord. And as the king, Louis decided to invade Henry's Normandy to teach him a lesson. So Henry and friends turned around and headed back with such speed that several of their horses collapsed and died on the road. That's how seriously they were coming back. And then they just spanked the friends of the king so badly they were happy to sign a five-year truce just to avoid getting more of the same. I think the actual royal army was not even involved because they were hurrying back like, never mind, la, 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 la. <laughs> well, Louis was never a great military mind, and Henry... It came very naturally to him. And so... <laughs> and then Henry just turned around and resumed plan A. I mean, he was a bad Alec. Let me tell you, if Eleanor resented her first husband and his sort of sulky temperament, she got the other end of the spectrum with this one because Henry does not play. <laughs> he, he doesn't play and he was extremely energetic. He was almost restless. He always had to be doing something. Even at dinners, he would be walking around. You know, he didn't like to sit still. So, yeah, way different. But (laughs) where Louis would kind of sulk, you know, if you offended him, this guy would throw a tantrum. Okay, I have to tell you a funny story. Uh, At least I think it's funny. I will guarantee you the residents of this town didn't think it was funny. (laughs) Okay, so even with his own people, he was kind of like the hammer, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, the Aquitanians are always grumbling over their ruler, always kind of rebellious. There is a story that the king and his wife and his entourage showed up and they camped outside the walls, sort of as respectful, because we'd take up a lot of space. We're fine. We're out here. And they got brought out inferior food from the town. And Henry said, what's the deal with this? Are you not producing enough food? Do we need to deal with this? And the lord of the town had the temerity to say, oh, well, only people who are within the walls get the best food. You know, this is this is suitable for people outside the walls. <laughs> and Henry is like, oh, really? And he had the wall taken down. <laughs> he had the wall taken down, taken down and carted away so they couldn't rebuild it easily. And then from then on, that town had no wall to defend itself all over some meat. So I hope yeah. it was worth it to them. <laughs> Yeah, but that's, I mean, that just shows that's a great example of what kind of person he was. You know, if there was a rock in his way, he's going to throw it as far away as he can. So this is the man who left Eleanor in charge of her lands while he headed off to England to fulfill his destiny and maybe for Eleanor to fulfill hers as far as medieval society was concerned because Eleanor was pregnant. Yeah, that really didn't take very long. Well, it took Henry less than a year to beat King Stephen and get this, this is some, this is a mess from on high the very day that king stephen's heir died choking on an eel they say which is like okay a don't eat eels i'm just (laughs) gross no i'm just kidding i know it was a very prominent staple of medieval diet so the very day that king stephen's heir died eleanor gave birth to an heir for henry so if you're looking for omens (laughs) there I know. And what a sign, right? I have to say it was the heir was Stephen's son, Eustace. There's a name. Mm -hmm. So grief and pressure and honestly, a country fatigued by a couple of decades of civil war led King Stephen to have to. He really had to. But he named Henry the heir to the throne. Uh, Even though there was a backup son, he's like, nope, Henry Plantagenet will be the king when I die. And he adopted him as a son. And he took Henry to the capital where the freaking relieved populace could not stop screaming Henry's name. And I think if you've ever seen pictures of VE Day after World War II, I think this is what it looked like. Oh, yeah. People were were just relieved that the dark days were over. 
And he agreed to let Stephen rule until he died and that there would be a peaceful and without denial transition. So, yeah. So in the late fall of the very next year, King Stephen of England died. So what did this mean? So if you get a map and you put your fingers on either side of England and then run them all the way down to the Mediterranean Sea, yes, Henry Plantagenet was now the dominant landowner in all of Western Europe. That is no joke. Yeah, we'll put a map on the website, but it's huge. I mean, the the swath of property that he's now overseeing. And then there's Louis's little teeny tiny France. <laughs> so, so powerful, though, was Henry's reputation that England literally had no one on deck as their official king for a month and a half. But nobody made a bit of trouble. For love of their king to come and maybe fear of their king to come if they messed up, I'd say. It's like holding faith for the new king. It can't continue forever, you know, but winter is the absolute worst time to cross the English Channel. So not ice, nor wind, nor waves of doom are going to stop Henry from going over there to take the wheel over in England. And in the face of a horrible storm, off he went and it took 24 hours to get across the English Channel, you guys. 24 tumultuous hours. And Eleanor is seven months pregnant at the time. And little William, baby William's on board, too. It's a big risk. It's a big risk. <laughs> well, no kidding. And, you know, not only just the people. It wasn't like they just jumped in the boat and, and got over there. There was all their stuff. I mean, she brought like 42 gowns and 14 pairs of shoes with her. For this event. 14 pairs of shoes. Amateur. I know. <laughs> well, six of those were embroidered with gold thread. And oh, oh, I have to tell you, there, she had five mantles with her. <laughs> M-A-N-T-L-E-S. Thank you very much. It's our Thank one you. official use of the <laughs> misspelling that kills me. I know. When I was writing that down, I actually put not fireplace. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> See, Susan must know me. So the sheer machismo of this trip sort of cemented Henry's reputation. And after they cleaned up all the vomit, is what I'm assuming is happening, (laughs) they proceeded to London. More and more people joined the procession. And on December 19th, Henry and Eleanor were crowned king and queen of England with all the ceremony they'd missed on their wedding day. Oh, I assure you it was here during this event. (laughs) And soon afterward, Eleanor gave birth to a second son, Henry, who we'll call young Henry. And if you're judging her on traditional queen merits, an heir in a spare in about two years gets you an A. <laughs> yeah. So we do know some of how she spent her time, obviously, with that evidence. But what else was she doing with her time? Unlike what had happened in France, when Eleanor brought her Aquitanian ways to court and sort of imposed them over the land, here in England, and with Henry in general, kind of, she seems to have kind of kept the epic luxury for her own quarters, like the spare no expense of comfort and joy, etc., was really reserved for the queen's rooms, but it was never allowed to creep out into the main body of the court. For one thing, Henry's position was kind of like, look, this place has been a corrupt, top-down hellhole for 20 years, and maybe a little simplicity is good for this court and all of you. And I think he liked making society and the snooty people very uncomfortable. Totally agree with you on that one. He was able to make a shocking amount of really sweeping and, I must say, quite modern reforms just by taking advantage of the fact that people at all levels of society were desperate just for stability. 
Because you know what? It's hard to plant crops when probably someone's going to set them on fire or steal them or tramp through them with their big boots on the way someplace. It's hard to have high ideals when your children are starving and there's no work anyplace. So mm-hmm. I, whatever you say, my king, as long <laughs> well, as my day-to-day life becomes very boring. The Civil War had left the place really a mess. There was, there was poverty and there was crime and people were just not used to having, you know, somebody say, okay, I'm in, I'm in control. Let's just clean this all up. No detail was too small for him. Anything, the price of wheat, the state of a road, where the bandits had been caught, anything. I had a CEO like that and you got to be on your toes. You got to know the answers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, one of the things that he did is he changed the entire judicial system. Before, people were tried by ordeal or by combat, which is just barbaric. But like, for instance, trial by ordeal would mean that the accused would walk over a hot iron. And if he was badly burned, it was a sign from God that he was guilty. Do you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of the whole um, witch trial thing, which is hundreds of years later. Yeah, I know. That's exact. And they did. They used the near drowning, too, which is exactly what they did in Salem. Like, yes. If you sink, you're innocent, but dead. And dead. if you float, you're a witch. What, how are you going to win? You can't. You can't. But he changed that all. So he put in place a judicial system that is still in use, not only in England, but here today. It was a trial by jury. It seems so radical. And um, yeah, so latter events in Henry's life overshadowed the fact that he kind of cleaned things up. He would fire corrupt officials, um, Mm -hmm. take property from churches who had gotten a little bit lax and a little bit complacent in their abuse of their parishioners, for example. Mm-hmm. So Eleanor is regent. and She was governing in her own name, but under Henry's umbrella of authority. And, you know, when you have a lot of things to do and you have an assistant that you really genuinely can count on to get things done properly, like you can just say, here's the big picture handle the situation, which is just a complete relief to you. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, Eleanor was that assistant. That's pretty cool because that's his big dreamland right there, England. And Henry is not a man who was that comfortable with delegation. So this is a big measure of respect. He has placed his dream country in her hands from time to time. So she presided in court. She oversaw finances. She issued official documents under her own seal as Eleanor, by the grace of God, Queen of England, day-to-day business, no problem. She gave orders to the officers and just really was the boss. She didn't make policy, if that makes sense, but she made sure that Henry's policy was executed without his micromanagement. Right. So Eleanor is regent and is really doing a great job. Another thing she was doing, along with Henry, sometimes without him, was traveling, Chris and Cross, over England and France, making appearances, being fancy, setting the hearts of the people on fire with fear and love. You know, sort of like Kate Middleton, but with more firepower. Probably an equally fabulous wardrobe. That is true. (laughs) Although I bet Eleanor could recycle a lot more than Kate Middleton is allowed to. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. So image was a lot in these pre-media days, and Henry and Eleanor really did understand that some public pomp and circumstance at the right times went a long way. It was good to be seen in the full regalia to remind people exactly what they're dealing with. So they mentioned that on The Crown. Did you watch The Crown? Twice. They mentioned that. They said, here you have 
a relatively ordinary young woman, but if you surround her with the regalia and the pomp and the circumstance, she gets transformed into a goddess. That's true. I think the same thing happened with um, Queen Victoria later, or later from Eleanor before Queen Elizabeth II. She was young, and, and when she got in the job and got the crown on, she transformed. And the main duty of a queen, as far as history was concerned, in addition to William and baby Henry, I'm just going to put them all here. I'm just going to. Okay. Yeah, I have them all like all together. So this is a 13 year span of time, but go ahead. So she's got Matilda, Richard, Jeffrey, Eleanor, Joanna, sometimes known as Joan, and John. And that's eight children for England. Don't forget the two we left behind in France. But let's just say no one is shirking any duties in this regard. Now, um, they're not all born yet in the chronicle of the story, but really to sprinkle them, you just wouldn't get the magnitude of this family size. I know. <laughs> so That's both true. of them, both of Henry and Eleanor are traveling upwards of 3,000 miles a year. But Eleanor was quite often doing it while pregnant. For the better part of 13 years. Like I said, backwards in heels, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Eleanor was a patron of the arts, literature, and music, and of religious institutions, particularly the Abbey at Fontreveau. Fontreveau. Do you know how many times I've tried pronouncing that? I mean, practiced it. <laughs> I just write it phonetically and say myself. Font- yeah, I did. Fontreveau. Yeah. But it was her favorite Abbey, and she really you know, gave them a lot of uh, donations and time and money. Elizabeth's own grandmother, Philippa, had paid for the founding um, of this abbey and had retreated there when her husband took up with Dangereuse, his mistress. And it had become, by this time and after Eleanor's death, a kind of fashionable, respectable place for ladies of wealth and breeding to withdraw from the world. (laughs) It's like a retirement village for ladies of a certain level of nobility. <laughs> I'm sure you were expected to contribute quite heavily to keep for the privilege oh. of living there. Well, yeah, like any retirement village, you have to pay to play, I suppose. I have a group of friends, we always joke about having a commune, like our own little compound commune. We'll never do it, but... I almost think a whole group of tiny houses on a beach somewhere might be cool. I love it. There you go. We're settled. We've got we've settled Susan's future. <laughs> no. Well, one thing Eleanor wasn't wasn't allowed to be, really, was the patron of underlords, because shrewd old Henry knew she had the gift of persuasion and political acumen, and he carefully limited the channels in which Eleanor's money could flow. A, Henry, do you have ESP? And two, nice try on that. (laughs) (laughs) But that's for the future. Henry had a chancellor, a best friend. I'd have to say. He was named Thomas Beckett. And this is so surreal, you guys. It is not often I say that name and refer to someone else. It's been (laughs) weird the whole time I have been writing this passage. And uh, Susan, I know you have a friend that you literally call Other Susan. Yeah, I do. Because her name is Susan. Yeah. (laughs) But I have never, ever, never, ever had to refer to Other Beckett before. So I love it. It's weird for me to say my own name in this way. Just like, <laughs> So I'm going to let you tell this whole story. Go for it. Also, you should know that in my notes, Beckett is always spelled with two T's, even though Mr. Beckett only has one. Okay, okay. that's hysterical. <laughs> so it was to Beckett that Henry entrusted the duty that he kept from Eleanor. So Beckett was the one that received foreign dignitaries and the underlords who needed a hand or money. And there's no evidence that Eleanor resented this or hated Beckett really at all, although her mother-in-law Matilda is on record of being very disapproving of his influence. 
Like, he's the son of a merchant, after all. <laughs> but you know what? Despite what you see in historical fiction, there's kind of a blank space where those novelists will insist on putting this great rivalry between Beckett and Eleanor. I don't think there's anything that says either way. So I guess to add drama to a historical fiction, they didn't play well together. He reminds me a lot of Henry VIII's best friend, his frat brother, Charles Brandon. He's going to be in The Mischief. He's going to be in The Serious Times. He's going to eat with you. He's always going to be around. He, Beckett, dressed fancier. He had a more flamboyant household. The king appreciated his skills and gave him literally anything he wanted. Any money, anything, any material Thomas Beckett's house was like the public relations arm of the government. Please do dazzle the public, Beckett. I need to enforce judicial reform and do some other boring things. So you be the shiny thing that dazzles the people. And this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens with this relationship between Thomas Beckett and Henry So here we are, one happy family with a lot of frequent flyer miles, and every time Beckett follows his king friend abroad, Eleanor increases her authority, and it's working great. But unfortunately, personally, little Prince William, age three, has died. And I'm sorry to say that's a common enough story, though this is the only child that Eleanor loses, at least in childhood. Yeah, definitely noteworthy. Over in France, King Louis has remarried to a woman who's even a closer cousin than Eleanor. So consanguinity be danged, whatever. <laughs> I guess we have to get those heirs, you know, chop, chop. And he had a third daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Henry and Eleanor had the idea to betroth the new French baby to their oldest son, young Henry, not even three years old yet. And master negotiator Beckett pulled this off, and her dowry was another strip of land to add to Henry's collection. But get this, it was customary and normal for bride children to be brought up in the household of their future husband, which kind of makes sense. I mean, you want them to be comfortable with their new country, I guess. If you know that early, they'd speak the language, they'd be familiar with the customs. I see kind of why, mm -hmm. except they're more like a hostage. <laughs> Well, baby Marguerite, age six months, was handed over to King Henry of England, and her papa's only stipulation being that Eleanor, his ex-wife, would not be in charge of her upbringing. <laughs> Louis is a little bitter still, I think. <laughs> so it's really hardly worth having an emotion about your girls at all, I think, in this time period when your husband just kind of disposes of them like pieces on a chessboard. Not too long afterward, things being what they were with responsibility to produce an heir, Louis' wife was about to have a second baby. And so Henry and Eleanor quick click hurried to be there in case it was a boy to betroth their baby daughter Matilda to him and make their preschooler the future queen of France. But alas, it was a girl named Elias. So King Henry went for the nuclear option to keep that strip of land that had come with his hostage baby, Marguerite. And Henry and Marguerite were married ages two and a half and five. And her land became the property of her new husband, obviously managed by his father as he was five years old. Yeah. <laughs> so incidentally, Matilda, you know, the one that didn't marry the baby that turned out to be a girl, um, she got married at 11 to a 35-year-old man. Yeah. 
Yeah. And son Jeffrey got married at eight to a six-year-old little girl. So they were very busy with their arranged marriages. I think, you know, they put a lot of thought and a lot of energy into it. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. The fact that Beckett could make that marriage happen when Louis and Henry and Eleanor were not exactly drinking buddies, that says a lot about Beckett's uh, negotiating power, don't you think? I do. And also he showed up with the riches of all time and kind of made a little bit of a dazzling sight and left Mm -hmm. a lot of his property behind as inducement, I think. Yeah. So Henry, in thanks for all sorts of arrangements like this, made Becket the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's the most powerful cleric in England, I think even still. I think Henry was trying to unite the crown and the church more. So when the position became open, um, you know, he was probably like, yeah, sweet bro. You do everything I say, like we've been doing all along. We're going to close this deal. We're going to bring the crown and the church together. And this is going to be awesome. But no, unfortunately, Thomas Beckett had his own idea. So where before he played the part of the glorious chancellor, you know, draped in luxury and pomp and snootiness and he took to his method acting ways i have to say it reminds me of what is his name the guy that played last of the mohicans daniel day lewis so he daniel day lewis himself (laughs) into playing the archbishop of canterbury he wore a hair shirt he promoted the interest of the church at every turn even against the king because that is what the archbishop of canterbury is expected to do His boss was no longer the king. His boss was God. And he's going to put as much energy into doing what that boss wants as he used to put into doing what Henry wanted. And can I just say, a hair shirt is actually a shirt made of hair. Like a it's like no it's like um goat like goat hair or yeah or horse hair but it's it's woven it i'll put one on the on the website because that was a little rabbit hole i fell into because i hear about it all the time i just never always look it up so that is so dangerous in that era where you can't cure an infection to purposely cause scabs all over yourself is just asking for it well, it just be it would be super super itchy, but it's supposed to help you remain pious and and sacrifice things like personal comfort. And I imagine it would stink too, because I don't think goat hair is all that absorbing. Ninety nine percent of life stink. <laughs> True. So this feud, because it was a feud, because Henry literally couldn't believe, like, could not believe this was happening. I made you. And now what are you doing to me? So this was a bad feud about who wielded the most influence. And it spiraled out of control to the point that rulers of other nations got involved in this church versus state controversy over in England. It was very bad. And the feud really colored the political picture of Western Europe for years and years and years. And it was about this time of the feud that Henry and Eleanor seemed to go their separate ways, amicably enough. The romantic chroniclers of a thousand years attribute this to the love of Henry for this knight's daughter named Rosamond Clifford. I don't know about this. I, you know, now, the stories will have you believe that Henry II, fearful of Eleanor's wrath, hid his mistress, this is the Rosamond in question, in a house in the middle of a fearsome maze, or else the house was a fearsome maze stories vary. But one day, Rosamond was outside of it and spied Eleanor coming, so she fled into the interior of the maze, because I guess she knew the way and Eleanor wouldn't. 
But, oh no, a thread of her dress got caught at the entrance and led the Wicked Queen. You know, I don't think she's the Wicked Queen, but whatever. No. Led her to the center, where she demanded that Rosamond choose between a dagger and poison. And Rosamond chose poison. Now, it's a prime subject for artists and writers. I mean, I can't even list all the ones, but we'll link you to some art that doesn't show Eleanor in a very good light, for one thing. But is it true? Is it true? To quote my source, the Magic 8-Ball sources say no. Honestly, Henry and Eleanor had grown apart. I mean, she, she'd fulfilled her duty in giving him children. Look, she's, what, in her 40s now? She's like 46, I think. And she's done all that stuff. And she's just like, I'm done. I, you know... I'm kind of a little, you know, menopausal here. I want to go where it's warm. We've had, we've done our thing, Henry. We've exhausted this whole relationship, I think. It did suit them both to have her move mm-hmm. to Poitiers because he could count on a little more stability with her there. And if there's one thing this man wants, because it sure doesn't happen a lot, is a little bit of stability. And on her behalf, wouldn't you rule your ancestral lands with like relative independence wouldn't you rather do that than be under the thumb of a guy who at this point might have been kicking cat and what i mean is anytime he's mad he storms into your room and stamps around and screams not at you but around you in his rage you're the one that he takes it out on because you're the safest one. Oh yeah completely going back to the rosamond thing he'd had mistresses forever And all kings did. It wasn't even like a thing that people batted their eyes about, really. That's future romantic writers and everything ascribing their society's values to this. And I just don't, I just really don't think even a woman he was deeply in love with would have, I mean, because who has the power? You don't get married for love. No. (laughs) You get married for power. And as long as you had the power, well then, eh. If you have to live in a maze for fear of me, which she didn't, but if you have to live in a maze for fear of me, then how powerful are you? <laughs> so the stories just don't ring true, although the art that those stories produced is quite great. I'll put a whole bunch on the Pinterest. We can put some in the show notes. But mm-hmm. um, well, Henry was constantly feuding with people big and small, King Louis for one, as always, come on. And part of a treaty with Louis, after all of this battling, was that he would divide his kingdom among his sons when he died to reduce the next generation's influence, I guess. And it's kind of boggling me as to why Henry would even agree to that, except for this practical measure. He was a powerful politician himself. He himself was having trouble hanging on to it all. And at least maybe this way, at least everything could stay in the family. I guess mm-hmm. that's the only rush. I mean, I know why Louis wanted him to do it to scatter his influence and maybe sow discord among his sons, which certainly worked out great. But that's the only thing I can think of for Henry is maybe just thinking for the future. But so young Henry was given England and his father's overlordship when he died. <laughs> Richard was to be his mother's successor in Aquitaine, etc. Jeffrey was married at eight, like I said, to a daughter of the Duke of Brittany. So Brittany, you're set. You've got your wife's property in Brittany. John's a baby, so we'll think of him later. We'll probably just give him to the church, right? I mean. Yeah, he was just a spare, 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 spare. So is Eleanor's hand in this? Probably. Because I don't think it's any coincidence that her favorite son, Richard, the one that looked the most like her, at least as far as the Chronicles say, gets her own land. Also, it makes sense that the second son would get the second most important job, kind of, if you're going to divide everything. Mm -hmm. 
So from the age of about 12, Richard is with his mother. Remember, she has moved away. She is in Poitiers. So he's with his mother all the time, learning the ropes, learning the language, preparing for the future, meeting the people. And Eleanor and Richard were very close, very close. It reminds me of me and my son, actually. You and me against the world, kid, you know. <laughs> so wait, are you teaching Jed how to rule your little corner of um, Brookside <laughs> at, your, at your side? Because, you know... Eleanor was doing a really good job of that. She was very skilled at it. So Richard was able to learn from her like a young king would learn from his father. Well, and she was able to reinstate, again, we've missed it. We've missed it for so long. That civilized, luxurious, artistic court of Aquitaine. There's songs. There's poetry. There's beauty everywhere. Food was important again. Hallelujah. Because Henry honestly didn't care. Food and the ceremonies around food were just not part of anything he even cared about. But now it is. Music was everywhere. And her younger children were allowed to be with her, too. And young Henry's wife, Marguerite of France, and her younger sister, Elias, also called Alice, who was betrothed to Richard. Nothing like keeping it in the family. Geoffrey's child wife, Constance, was here, and it was just one big happy family, really. I think so. It was really vintage Aquitaine. And historians cannot be content with the boringness of everything clicking nicely into place. Like the Rosamond Clifford story, this period of time, which seems very relaxing and beautiful, this period of time has been embellished, I mean, bedazzled, like ugly embellished, <laughs> by the concept of Eleanor's court here being the origin of chivalry as we know it. You know, like brave knights, damsels in distress, shivering on their pedestals, and that Eleanor's court was home to this series of debates or salons called the Courts of Love, where Eleanor and her daughter Marie and other highborn ladies created and, I guess, enforced a rule book on the principles of courtly love. And then they had these trials where they sat in judgment on this case or that, like a broken heart, a broken engagement. Can true love exist between husband and wife? Or is it just a business arrangement? Like those kind of questions. Mm -hmm. Who's more superior, men or women? According to this version of the story, um, yeah, that was a big question. And of course, she picked women, of course. And in the question of married love, uh, Eleanor in the tales was supposed to say, no, love cannot exist in a marriage, only outside of it. But okay, so both of these things have a germ of truth in them, I will say. So the legend of King Arthur, we all know the legend of King Arthur, you know, it had been percolating up everywhere in art and literature about this time and the public fancy too. Just like today, how there's fairy tales coming up everywhere in our pop culture. Where did all this come from? All this Red Riding Hood, Grimm's fairy tale stuff, it's just everywhere. And there was likely a lot of interest in chivalry and knights just in the air since it was fashionable. One of the predictions supposedly attributed to Merlin, Arthur's, uh, what do you call him? A wizard? A sorcerer? Yes. Sorcerer? Yeah, I think so. Well, so it's a later writer attributing this to Merlin, so that's obviously not true, um, made the prediction, the eagle of the broken covenant shall rejoice in her third nestling. And it was widely considered to refer to Eleanor, to the point where sometimes she was referred to as the eagleess. I'm imagining her like soaring around Aquitaine, you know, 
all the happy people below. The economy's doing good. She brought back all these craftsmen and these artists. So like an eagle above it all. I like it. The courtly love thing had some basis, too, in that a man who wrote in Eleanor's daughter Marie's court later, later than this period. The work is called, I can't even pronounce this, Tractatus de Amore by Andreas Capolanis. It's a work of fiction. Later writers will sometimes refer to this as the birth of feminism. And I just like, hey, it's a fictional novel. I just don't know that this is the birth of feminism. Yeah, but if it's even if it's fiction, it started, I guess. Would you, you know what I'm saying? Does that make any sense at all? Well, like they, it was actually put down on paper, whether, whether it was true or not, it was a concept that was accepted, right? He produced these radical ideas about the relationships between men and women, um, love or whatever. So they were narrated by famous women of the day, also including Eleanor. So, so we'll have to link you to that so you can read all of them. So I don't know. That's sad though, that one more major part of nearly every fictionalization of Eleanor's life was not likely to be true. And created by a man. <laughs> I guess all I can take from that is maybe those ideas were swirling around, like you said. I guess I can buy that. Those ideas, those radical ideas that women were actually people and worthy <laughs> of interest must have been in the air. And he nailed them down on paper. So I could buy that, I guess. Okay. But to paint Eleanor and her daughter Marie as some kind of movement i just don't think so also there's no evidence that daughter ever made her a visit no <laughs> so so it's all kind of made up out of whole cloth but here is here's a tiny one i want to be true it sounds more like i imagine her in the first place okay uh okay so i don't know if this is true or not true i just like it richard and his dudes teenage boys get this idea to ride their horses right into the great hall during dinner they're not even gonna make it YouTube video of it. They're just doing it for jollies, which would never occur to teenage boys now. So they rode these horses right into the great hall during dinner. And there's a hush while everyone looks at Eleanor, who says, my son is queen of France and queen of England. I've had many opportunities to dine with a horse's ass, but never with the whole animal. And then she pointed to the door. <laughs> it's my favorite myth. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's hold on to it. Let's perpetuate that one because it's a great story. So there's Richard, tall, brave, relatively indulged, I must say, operating oh. over in Aquitaine, being trained to rule. But his older brother, young Henry, was being stifled by their father. He was given no power, no respect from King Henry on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, that is a fundamental flaw King Henry has, uh, his treatment of his sons. But as a show of faith, I guess, and insurance for the future, King Henry had wanted his son crowned as the young king while he himself was still alive, like the French kings did. Yes, well, it makes sense because, you know, the Civil War happened because, you know, nobody was had that crown on their heads and it was up for grabs. So... Why would he want that for anybody, for his country, for all this stuff that he put together? Yeah, he's got to put somebody in charge, but he's also a micromanager. So he's not going to give Henry Jr. any power at all. But King Henry and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who traditionally does the crowning, they were at such odds right now that Beckett had fled the country. <laughs> so King Henry made the secondary Archbishop of York do it and some other bishops, which infuriated the church as a whole, and Beckett in particular who excommunicated all the clergymen involved as soon as he returned to England, which led King Henry to say out loud some version of these fateful words. 
will no one rid me of this turbulent priest. Which really does sound like a challenge, especially for four of his knights, perhaps, who took it as a uh, as a directive. They went to where Beckett was with some swords and killed him. His blood and brains were all over the floor of Canterbury Cathedral. Yeah, I, I was going to say I don't want to get too graphic here, but blood and brains, that's pretty horrifying. Like Lizzie Borden's parents' level of gore, and it was done in a cathedral at the presumed order of the king. I mean, the shock waves radiated out all over Europe. Vassals, the church, enemies, even the common man's displeasure landed on Henry II's head. And this event, I believe this event, more than all that nonsense of Rosamond Clifford, is what I think made Eleanor turn on her husband. Oh, yeah. Well, his reputation was damaged. Bad. And he can't take it back. Like, oh my gosh, on Survivor recently, this guy outed somebody who was transgender on television. Oh. And you can't, you can't take it back. You can't take it back. The guy had played the game twice without anybody knowing. And somebody outed him trying to save their own skin. Man. I know, very dramatic. You can't, but you can't, like Henry, you can't take those words back. They happened. Well, so... <laughs> So the mood was not so good toward Henry II, and young Henry, I assure you, was already there. Get this. Right after the coronation of young Henry, Henry II made a point. I thought this was very gracious. Henry II made a point of serving his son a dish and saying it's not every day a king waits at table. And young Henry, in this illuminating statement, which should tell you all you need to know about young Henry, I see nothing wrong with the son of a count serving the son of a king. <laughs> a freaking entitled <laughs> Okay, in Henry Jr.'s defense, if he saw an opportunity to stick it to the man, he's going to take it, right? He's going to be king. He's got a crown, you know? He's not given any power. I Yes, he's entitled and overindulged and not ready for the job. No question about it. King Henry saw the lay of the land and kept young Henry really short on funds and always by his side, which really exacerbated the problem don't you think like the opposite of what was needed oh yeah and then henry but henry needed all that money his you know he wasn't low maintenance so you know where did he get it he stole it like any overindulged kid does so all of this tension this interfamily tension came to a head when eleanor was about 51 king henry had given some castles that were young henry's to his brother John, just giving him with the attitude like, well, why should you begrudge your brother? He doesn't have anything. And John the baby was King Henry's favorite son. I mean, these people did not really subscribe to that notion that all the children are loved the same. No. All your favorites, it seems like. And so one night, young Henry, age 18, escaped from where he was staying with his father and he bolted for France. And King Henry tried to chase him, but hey, young Henry had replacement horses. All along the route. Who did that? King Louis? Eleanor? Somebody. And what of this? Richard, 16, and 14-year-old Geoffrey took off after their brother. Not to catch him, but to join him in France. Instead of keeping them under control like she was supposed to do, which is why they were there in the first place, Eleanor sent, maybe, or allowed, or looked the other way, them to go. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, of all places, she had a hand in it. How big of a hand? Don't know. But she was involved. So King Henry sent a messenger for his sons to return from the court of the King of France. 
now. And King Louis, Mr. Innocent, I cannot even, like, I'm smiling just thinking about him saying this. Yeah. Well, now, who sends me this message? And the messenger's all, like, confused. Uh, the King of England has demanded that his sons come back. And King Louis looks around. Nonsense. I have the King of England with me already. Can't be true. <laughs> like, oh, my God. So I, if you think of, like, a teeter-totter, you know, Louis's power, his influence was kind of dwindling before while Henry's was rising. And now King Henry's is dropping fast and Louis is rising up again. He's getting more power. He's also got a son at this point. So Henry writes this letter to Eleanor, convince your sons to reconcile with their father. And in response, Eleanor headed for France too. <laughs> she didn't even respond. It's like, oh no. Oh, oh, did I see that email? I don't think I saw that email. <laughs> you know, that's why you can't do anything like on Facebook Messenger because there's a timestamp when somebody looks at it. <laughs> So Eleanor headed for France partway there. I think they realized they were being tailed and she changed into men's clothing to try to avoid detection, but she was stopped and she was arrested. And there might have been a spy with her party or it might have just been bad luck. They've always been very good at staying one step ahead of the people that were chasing him. You know, even when she left Louis originally to go back to Aquitaine after her divorce, you know, she was zigzagging all over the place to stay ahead of him. And Henry Jr. had just done exactly the same thing, you know. Henry Sr. had sent people after him, but he kind of zigzagged his way to France ahead of him. So I'm going with spy in court. Well, so this was shocking. This was shocking to Europe. Europe has had so many shocks. So sons, you know, men, they want power. You'd almost expect a little trouble from a son or three sons, three times the trouble. But for a wife to turn traitor against her lord and master, a woman, this was just against nature. The hammer fell on Eleanor and her reputation right here. And he, man, he dismantled her court. He took his daughters-in-law back with him as hostages against their relations, I guess. Um, you know, because they might otherwise be inclined to join his sons against him, right? Of course they would. So now it's open warfare. It's civil war. Rebellion everywhere. But you know, Henry the Young King is 18. And we've all seen what a master strategist King Louis is. Mm -hmm. so King Henry made a pilgrimage to the tomb of Thomas Becket, which had become sort of the place you go to expect miracles because um, he's seen as a martyr. This guy that had played these two roles, as soon as he's murdered, he gets this reputation as being, you know, he was his last role was the servant of God. The reputation just shot up after he died. It was a place you would go on a pilgrimage, and King Henry went there, and he did penance. He allowed the monks to whip him. He wore simple clothes. He slept on the tomb of Thomas Becket. He apologized. He wept. He really made a big... I don't think it was a show. I think he really genuinely made a... I mean, he always felt bad. I, you know, it's doubtful. Did he mean for that to happen? It was convenient that it happened, but did he mean for that to happen? It's We'll never know. Yeah. So the, he thinking that was his way, his, um, not just his penance, but his um, punishment. Like if he had gone before one of his juries and been found guilty of that, he would have had this serious punishment. So doing that to himself was that punishment, maybe? I don't know. Well, he attributed his victory, King Henry did, to this event where he paid homage to the tomb of Becket. But he was honestly just really good at this sort of thing anyway. <laughs> um, so some people... Some people paid big. In fact, the King of Scotland lost his independence and his country was now a vassal state of England. How about it? But mm. mostly, there was kind of a general amnesty. The sons were forgiven and given revenue and lands, even John this time. 
But you know who was not forgiven? Eleanor was not forgiven. So what is the best way to punish her? Punish this wife who had been a traitor to him. It wouldn't be to kill her because that would be too quick. She'd be done. Um, and he would have killed yet another somebody that people admire. But the best punishment would be to separate her from everyone. So he imprisoned her. He kept her moving from castle to castle for the next 16 years. That's crazy. So she wasn't in a cell exactly. Um... She was here and there. I have to tell you, that first year, nobody was sure where she was. Like, nobody still knows what happened that first year. Mm -hmm. That first year, she may well have been in a jail or in a cell or in a tower. I mean, but but the records begin when she's about 53. And until she was about 61, uh, she was surrounded by guards and spies and kind of disappears from time to time and reappears at different castles and has contact with nobody. No letters. No anything. You're cut mm. off. So her sons grow up without her. Her country goes on without her. Golly, that is a good punishment for someone that liked to have her finger on the pulse. Oh, yeah. And like to have her family about her. And the woman is obviously, you know, really extroverted and she needs all that interaction. She had one maid. I mean, it wasn't like Joan of Arc level prison, but it was more like Mary Queen of Scott prison where it was you know, just isolation from everybody. But it wasn't, like you said, it was very plush. But one maid. Later, that maid that was uh, with her in this confinement got uh, a giant estate and a bunch of money. So I guess she must have been a good companion all this time. But there was a request for one coverlet for the bed of Eleanor and -and so-and-so. So they shared a bed, which was common enough, I guess, in this era before Central Heat and everything. But, But that's to level we have fallen. We are sleeping with one maid in our bed. Mm. So meanwhile, there's a little wrinkle. There's a little wrinkle. Maybe, says King Henry, I can annul my marriage to Eleanor to marry Alice of France. Yes, his his son Richard's (laughs) fiance, the same Alice. The same Alice who he had been at her birth. (laughs) That Alice. Well, says Henry, there's that old standby, consanguinity, and also blast of trumpets. Da 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 da. My father told me not to marry her in the first place because she and my father had had an affair. So by the standards of the time, that's incest, people, that's incest. And then his advisors are like, but he told you, he told you. So you knew that going in, so all your children are would be illegitimate. You can't save them now that you admitted that you knew ahead of time. If you didn't know, or if you pretended you didn't know, we could have helped you. But also, her lands go back to her. And if she's no longer your vassal, you can't hold her anymore, and she could marry somebody else. It is a minefield, sire. So then he's like, fine. You know, and he tried to pressure her to retire to Fontevraud Abbey, then become a nun. And then I can keep your land, and then all the kids will be illegitimate. And she's like, no way. And the Pope refuses to force her to do it, which is what Henry wanted him to do. It, he even offered her, like, a really sweet job as the abbess of Fontevraud. Like, that's a big deal. But heck no. So Henry, defied by his advisors and the Pope, carried on with Alice anyway after Rosamond Clifford died. And you can see that Eleanor has an alibi here for Rosamond Clifford's death prison. Yeah. Henry kind of started hanging out with her a little bit more publicly after Eleanor was imprisoned. So that whole poison and dagger thing couldn't possibly have happened. 
So this family was a freaking mess, by the way. So young Henry and Geoffrey fought against Richard. King Henry tried to interfere and was like shot at on two different occasions by young Henry's men. And honestly, this sounds like a backseat argument. Young Henry would say, make him give it to me. And then Richard would be like, be a man and come take it, why don't you? It was like that for years and years and years and years. This went on and on to one degree or another, in and out, assorted participants, which we just can't get into. It is the worst game of Survivor ever. I know. Revolting and teaming up against the other person. And turnabout and lying. And Jeffrey was the worst and you can never trust him. And it was just like, ah, I can't even talk about it. They're just a mess. It is a freaking mess. That's all I'm going to say about that. So the myth of the eagle, the prediction of the eagles got to King Henry, too, because he had had he had had some murals made for the painted chamber in Winchester Castle, and one of the murals was the following, and I quote, There was an eagle painted, and four young ones of the eagle perched upon it, one on each wing, and a third upon its back, tearing at the parent with talons and beaks, and the fourth, no smaller than the others, sitting upon its neck and awaiting the moment to peck out its parent's eyes. When some of the king's close friends asked him the meaning of the picture, he said, the four eaglets are my four sons, who cease not to persecute me even to death, and the youngest, whom I now embrace with such tender affection, will someday afflict me more grievously and perilously than all the others. Whoa. So young Henry, at last, fell mortally ill, and I believe it was food poisoning, that old friend of killing everyone. Yeah, he died of dysentery. How much is Pepto-Bismol? Not to <laughs> So he had asked his father to come to him, but you know, the trust was low. And King Henry did not come, because why would you? Because it's a trap. He sent a ring instead, which young Henry was actually buried with, except for his eyes and his intestines, which were buried somewhere else. Ew. I think I read somewhere that he was dead for a while, so they couldn't even get the ring off, so... Just bury him in it. Well, young Henry was only 28 when he died. And Eleanor, when she was told, had kind of said resignedly and grimly that she already knew because she'd had a dream. And she mentioned the ring. Of course, you know, that could be fabrication too, as it probably is. But that she had mentioned that he was wearing a sapphire ring and dying. And she already kind (laughs) of knew what they had come to tell her. So Eleanor was allowed more freedom after this. And she began to appear. Now, more freedom does not mean she's free, by the way. So she just began to appear at ceremonial occasions. Still with a guard, by the way. Um, Ultimately, two guards. I don't know what that means. But she wasn't really free. But at least she got to be out in the public. And I think that King Henry was thinking she'd be a good influence on making those remaining sons behave. And I'm not sure on what he based that thought. unless Unless it was like the threat. Fix this crazy scenario in our family or go back to exile again maybe that was it maybe like leverage. or maybe it was just the optics of having the queen by his side because that's what they had done at the beginning of his reign and it worked very well so this point right here is where the movie lion in winter starts by the way so see how much you've missed if you just know eleanor from seeing katherine hepburn or glenn close glenn close played the role too Ultimately, son Jeffrey died, possibly in a tournament. It was gangrene, I believe, is how he went. So, Eleanor's sons were down to two. Richard and John. And King Henry unwisely kept wavering on who he was going to leave it all to, which is so unsettling. Just make a call and make sure yeah. people accept your call. I don't, I don't understand why. I mean, if you want it to be John, just say John and let the fight break out and let it be resolved at the end. Do you think? I don't know. Yeah, no, I definitely do. He, at this point, you know, uh, 
Henry wasn't the young stallion that Eleanor had married at all. He was lame in one leg. He had gray hair and paunch, and his health was bad overall. So um, he needed to pick somebody, but he's going back and forth. And maybe it was just who was ever in his favor at that moment. I don't know. Well, I don't know. But the French were on Richard's side. (laughs) And after so much warfare, I mean, really, so much warfare, Richard and the forces of the French and allies all over the place finally defeated old King Henry and humiliated him. And he was so very mad. And this is the last thing he ever said to Richard, his son. The last thing he ever said was that he hoped he lived long enough to take revenge on him. Mm, Well, this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what happens when Eleanor no longer has a king to hold her hostage. We are back. King Henry, poor old King Henry, was about to perish. (laughs) And one of the very last things he found out was that not only Richard had betrayed him, but his beloved son John had also betrayed him. And so he died. Richard, backed by the French, now pretty much the undisputed king of England and etc. One of the first things Richard did was to order his mother to be freed. By the time he got there, he discovered it had already been done. Because they were like, we knew it would be so, sire. You know, we just thought we would (laughs) anticipate and not be still holding your mother when you got here, kind of. Yeah, really. No kidding. This was an easy one. This is an easy call. You know, all those years in in confinement had made Eleanor a lot more patient. She was much more pious than she had ever been. She was overall like really a lot more chill. Now, I'm not sure if all these qualities were because she was in such a restricted environment for so long or because she had just reached that certain age. There's no reason for me to get upset about all this stuff age. I don't know. Am I at that age? I don't know. I don't think I am at that age. (laughs) Good decision, captors of Queen Eleanor, because King Richard showed more faith in Eleanor than anyone on earth. Her word, he told everybody, her word was law, the end, especially in England. And at 67, her freedom year, she reduced some unpopular taxes and penalties. She freed all the prisoners. (laughs) Uh, basically saying, I have discovered how unfortunate that makes you feel. So you're free. Um, She pardoned her own jailers, although I think Richard did come after them later with a little punishment, but she pardoned them as far as she's concerned. She reduced a lot of corruption. She traveled all over England to spread goodwill on behalf of her son, Richard, who has hardly ever even been to England. Um, And she was known as Eleanor the Good and Wise. She donated to religious institutions in the king's name. The entirety of his reign, honestly, he was only there for less than a year. Some people say less than six months. Because really, he he was the Aquitanian heir for most of his life, and that's where he'd spent all his energy. And for some reason that I don't comprehend, he decided to go on crusade. And this was the third one, if you're keeping track. And he didn't just decide to go on crusade. He decided to go on crusade with Louis' son, who was now the king of France, King Philip. They decide to combine forces and go on that third crusade. So again, like when Eleanor and Louis had gone, you know, it's just a, a three hour tour. You know, it's 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 not. <laughs> well, interestingly, um, Richard forbade women from uh, going. 
which is probably a good idea. His mother probably told him some stories, I would think. Well, and this whole trip was against Eleanor's wishes, honestly, because she fairly enough said, you don't have an heir. What are you doing? You don't have an heir. And he's like, well, get me a wife, not Alice. I'm not marrying her after my father has openly cavorted with her. What kind of fool would I be? But don't tell Philip, my friend, who I'm going on crusade with, because that's his sister and he'll be totally mad. So find me a wife, meet me on the way to crusades, and then I'll marry her in secret. And then that'll be like all done. Is that the weird? Okay, so. (laughs) Now the weird thing is, is she did it. (laughs) So she looked around to find a respectable person from a respectable family. Yes, but the person she found was also 25 years old and very meek and not likely to be a threat to Eleanor's power. Berengaria of Navarre, who nearly disappears from history entirely. Richard hardly even saw her, frankly. So Berengaria of Navarre and Eleanor had to travel through hostile territory. They didn't have safe passage letters. Italy, which of course wasn't Italy, but the parts of Europe that later became Italy were full of warring principalities. The Queen Dowager of England and a Princess of Navarre are just cruising through hostile territory. I mean, how brave is that? So anyway, Berengaria and Richard were married. It's a done deal. And off he went, abandoning his brand new wife. I'm sorry to say that on crusade, Richard was the perpetrator of such atrocities that he is still infamous for them in that area of the world. Yeah, you think he was named Richard the Lionheart, which sounds really nice, (laughs) unless you realize that a lion is kind of vicious. He's referred to as Bad Richard. Yeah. We'll link you to the History of the Crusades podcast, and you can hear all about an innocent men, women, and children executed in a fit of pique, etc. Thousands of them. So... You know what? Yeah. None of these brave deeds that everyone talks about, the brave deeds, they none of them come without a price. And usually it's the innocent people that pay a price. So unsung heroes of all these conflicts are the people that whose corn was trampled, whose child was killed, whose wife was attacked. And it's all well and good to say that we're marching all over Europe and the Middle East, but people paid the price. And not only yeah. the right people. <laughs> No, and and that third crusade was, it was another fail. So back in England, there were a couple of different regents, official regents. Eleanor was not an official regent, but it was kind of understood that her advice should be taken into account. But one immediately started intriguing against the other one, and all Eleanor could do kind of was to limit the damage. And... Eleanor had to put all of her wiles to use to keep her son John from swooping in and taking the country while his brother was gone. She even, as they say, quote, cried mother's tears. You know what? Whatever works. It was really hard because if Richard didn't come back, dysentery kills a whole bunch of people on crusade, I guess. And, you know, crusades kill a bunch of people on crusade. If Richard didn't come back, she and a lot of other people wanted John to be the king. So you can't be too harsh with a guy who could very well be your king in five minutes. You know, you got to be careful. So Eleanor had to toe the line on that one, and she did a very good job. And he <laughs> retreated and sulked, is what they said. So I guess she must have really bested him emotionally also. So <laughs> I don't know what happened to that old gentleman's agreement that you don't attack a guy's land while he's on crusade, but I guess you need a gentleman for that, and you didn't have any. So that's what was happening in England while Richard was away. But everyone started to trickle back. And no Richard. No Richard. Hey, have you seen Richard? No one knew where he was. 
until Eleanor got a note. Richard had actually been taken prisoner by Henry VI, the Holy Roman Emperor. So Richard is in Germany as a prisoner. Eleanor's got to get him out. So she pleads with the Pope, which does her no good. So she she raised the ransom money so that she could get him freed. I think it's one of those women get stuff done kind of situations. Well, and about 100 hostages from noble English families had to go with that money. And I have to say, Eleanor was pretty ruthless about that, too. i to be careful with Eleanor. I mean, she, she wants him back on the throne. You know, he hasn't really done the job yet, and he was her favorite. Of course she wants him back. So Richard was returned, although I don't know what happened to all the hostages. But John was reconciled with his brother and, like, really towed the line for years. He, I am tournament man. Dun, 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 dun. I'm, I'm no threat. La, la, la. So Eleanor... <laughs> Eleanor looked around. Things were going okay. This had been a hard few years, man. This last five years about like to kill me and I'm 72 years old. So she retired for good, she thought, to the Abbey of Fontrevaux. But alas, Richard was killed by an arrow. By an infection after someone tried to get the arrow out, more like. Because the arrow, can arrows just stay in there forever? Can you just leave it in? Uh, You mean like the wooden part? No, like, like they got the, ma- the wooden part out, but the head was still in there. And this, oh, like, I see. This guy who was a, like a mercenary, I don't know what his medical credentials were, dug around to get the arrowhead out and really made such a hash of it, almost literally, that that's really what killed him. Yeah. The blood poisoning from the ham-handed getting the arrowhead out. I'd be interested to know if, had he just simply left it in, aren't there cases of Civil War guys walking around with shrapnel all over them? Yeah, I think leaving the... I think I've seen that on Grey's Anatomy. They leave the bullet in. I am, yeah. And it's his arm. It's not like it's his heart. Yeah, but a head of an arrow is pretty... You know, it's bigger than a bullet. But I, I know it, it hurts and it would suck, but would it kill you? Oh, yeah. Don't know. Hmm. And we still don't know because... <laughs> Poor Richard died of septicemia, which is, ow, that's painful. That's a bad death. This is the rumor that went around the country. Someone had found a hoard of gold, a hoard of gold in a field. And someone claimed it. His overlord took it. His overlord took it from him. It changed into a statue of something. It changed into vessels of gold and blah, blah, blah. No one knew. No one had seen it. It was an archaeological treasure. And Richard decided he was going to go take it as the ultimate overlord from everybody. When he got there, they shot him with an arrow. So that's thing which may not have even existed is what killed him. Yeah, even though he went, survived the Crusades and he survived everything that he has so far. Yeah, going on a treasure hunt killed him. This is the rumor that went around the country. So Eleanor was there for his death and Richard was buried at Fontrevaux. You know, his heart is still in a, was in a box. It was buried in a box. Did you read about that? It was found in a lead box near where he was buried and recently underwent some uh, bioanalysis and they found remains of linen cloth. They found pollens from myrtle, daisy and mint that were used to preserve it. Um, They found some copper and some mercury that were also used as embalming uh, agents. And they found a bit of frankincense to make it smell good. (laughs) It was like all dust, but it's you can we'll put a picture up. You can see it. It's in a glass box it looks like sand or rocks but yeah it's richard the lionheart's heart 
<laughs> I know. The things they saved, right? Well, Richard, uh, although evidently he had a heart, he had no heir. And you know what that means, old England. You know what that means. Like, who freaking even wants this kind of power is what I have to say <laughs> anyway. But what good is it? But whatever. Everybody wants it. So um, Eleanor had to come out of retirement to help John to take and hold the throne. Uh, again, with the massive PR tour beginning, and Eleanor was a good counteract for John himself, who did not inspire loyalty or friendship. I'm going to put that in the mildest form. <laughs> so she went to find a bride for the son of the French king, thinking, okay, just like the War of the Roses, many, many years later, let's get these Plantagenets and Capets, Capets, tied together by marriage their children will be a mixture of both and the war will be over. That's the theory. So always the prime mover at 77 years of age, she traveled to Castile to choose one of her own granddaughters. She's kidnapped on the way. Of course she is. Almost a classic at this point. <laughs> and her guard was killed on the way back. Come on. But anyway, so they made it eventually. She chose Blanche, maybe, sources say, because her sister was named Uraka. And Eleanor said that the French would never accept a queen with such an outlandish name. But how hard is it to change your name? Yeah, not hard at all. Uraka. Weird. Hasn't come back. U-R-R-A-C-A. So anyway, I don't think I don't think it should come back. No. So she chose Blanche. They made it. Blanche and Louis VIII were married and is that the end? Can I go? But no. Another grandson popped up his head. and He wanted a piece of the action. In this situation, it was uh, Jeffrey's son, Arthur. He really wanted to get that crown on the head. So again, this rebellion came up and, and Eleanor's in the middle of it. The woman just wants to retire. She just wants to go hang out at the Abbey. So little Arthur, age 15, thought he should be the king of England. And so here she is at a castle called Mirabeau that honestly was not in the best of shape. And she was kind of holed up in the keep, which is the last bastion, the last secure area. The walls had already been breached. Opposing forces of Arthur are sitting in the courtyard around their campfires. And she's negotiating and delay and tap dance. And like, your grandmother, go take any other castle. My dear, my, don't do this to yourself. Blah, blah, blah. Until John comes to save her. And she did tell John in no uncertain terms to leave Arthur unharmed. He's just a boy. He's got bad advisors. Um, all I can say is this is the last we officially see of Arthur. So did he <laughs> die? Was he jailed forever? Well, the rumors were that John had had him murdered, which fit his character, by the way. I'm sorry to say his reputation precedes him. So was he dragged out of jail and murdered? Was he put in chains in a, in a hole and never spoken of again? Nobody knows what happened to Arthur. Really, this event begins the complete falling apart of the great Angevin Empire. That whole thing you did with your finger on the map from Scotland all the way down to the Mediterranean is starting to crumble. But it did take a while, and Eleanor did not live to witness it. It would have broken her heart, I think. Eleanor had finally, at last, for realsies this time, retired back to Fontreville Abbey, taken the veil as a nun at the age of 80, and on the 1st of April... 1204, Eleanor died at the Abbey, where she was buried between her son Richard and her husband Henry. The effigy that they put over her um, grave was not of her resting in peace, but it's of her laying with a little smile on her face, reading a book. I love that. Which seems to be very fitting for someone who had to use her wits her whole long life. 
Like, wisdom is not how anyone remembers her. It's action and learning and action and wisdom. So I'm glad. I think that's very fitting. I do, too. And I'm sorry to say that during the French Revolution, (laughs) these tombs were broken up and the bones inside were taken and thrown who knows where. Except for evidently the box of Richard's heart. Yeah, I know, right? But it wasn't it wasn't just Eleanor, it was Henry and it was Richard and it was Joanna. All of their bones were scattered. And so the effigies were restored, but Eleanor's not there. So if you go see Fontreveau, she's really not there. So it's telling that after her death you start to see the outline of modern France emerging, which reminds me of our episode on Queen Nzinga, who held it all together and the second Queen Nzinga died, it all fell apart. And that pretty much happened with Eleanor. There was no Eleanor to hold it together, to keep people together, to keep people from being crazy, um, crazier than they already were. And that's what people keep forgetting. Instantly, her reputation, you know how it goes. They wrote of her sexual exploits or her, quote, shrewish nature. And I'm looking at you, William Shakespeare, (laughs) a monstrous injurer of heaven and earth. Indeed. It's very easy to insult a woman that way. We've seen it before. It's hard for men, especially, and, you know, historians were largely men, to understand the sort of power that had to be wielded by proxy. So think about who she was. I mean, she could have been this 15-year-old French queen who had two daughters and faded into obscurity. The end. That was a perfectly legitimate way to go for the time. But she changed her story. And the story of Europe, <laughs> to say. Her descendants are in royal and noble houses all over the continent. Not the least, Queen Elizabeth II of England. How about that? So that brings us to the end of the coverage of Eleanor of Aquitaine. I am so glad that people picked her because there's a lot more to her than I think a lot of people, even the people that voted in the guaranteed content poll for her. I think that there was a lot more to her than even they knew. So I'm I'm glad. I'm glad I know more. (laughs) Would you have liked her, do you think? Would you have hung out with her? Um... I like her straightforwardness. She reminds me, I don't mean to trivialize Eleanor of Aquitaine at all. She reminds me a lot of Scarlett O'Hara. Oh? Scarlett O'Hara's power also had to be wielded by proxy. And of course, in Scarlett O'Hara, it came out as like, well, don't, little of me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so she knew what she wanted to do, but her society didn't give her the power to act. And so she got a little bit of scandal attached to her because she had to act in ways that were not ladylike. But deep down, when it came down to it, Nellie was having a baby and needed help, or Tara needed saving. Who was there doing what mm-hmm. she had to do? And so in in that regard, I think Eleanor, uh, I would like her. I do. I think I would like her. Plus, she was so, um, by all accounts, witty and inappropriate. So I always like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I always think about that it, at this point, when, after we've talked about somebody, whether I would like to hang out with them. And I think I think I could have learned a lot from Eleanor. And I think I would have been happy to play, you know, not compete as the alpha woman with her because you couldn't, <laughs> you I know, think she'd be too busy to hang out. Like you keep texting her and she'd be like, sorry, in a meeting. Sorry, I had to travel to Cyprus. Sorry. I, you'd never get her. You'd never get her over. Well, maybe she'd be passing through town and you'd like run to catch up with her for, you know, two hours or something. I think that's the kind of friendship you'd have to have. Yeah, well, it's okay. I take it. So on to media. In the interest of brevity, here's what I have. I have, hmm, I have so many books. Um, so many books. So any book that is fictional in my list, I found a list that includes them all on Goodreads. And there's 24 of them, and the hits just keep coming. Elmer mm-hmm. of Aquitaine is very popular subject for fictional novels. 
So I am not going to recommend any fictional ones because I am going to simply put my Goodreads list of 24, which isn't even mine. I just found it. Okay. And includes my list in the links. So. Well, I, since we're talking about fictional books, I spent a lot of time with this particular book, so I'm going to talk about it for a second. Okay. Um, it was Alison Weir's Captive Queen. Alison Weir, who one of the nonfictions that I really liked, she wrote. She wrote so many. I did not like this book at all. It begins at the divorce from Henry, but Eleanor is presented as like this sex-focused it's like that was all that ruled her life. That was her primary motivation. I really, really wanted to like it, but I only made it up to like halfway through before I just had enough. Okay, the only fictional one I'll call out then. How about this? That I really did like. And evidently I liked it as a child. Although reading it now, I'm thinking I was a weird child. It's A Proud Taste for Scarlet and Miniver by E.L. Konigsberg, the same person that wrote from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. And what that is, is Eleanor has made it to heaven. And it's different people talking about different aspects of Eleanor's life. And so it's pretty interesting. I would say it's probably a 6th or 7th grade reading level. I'm sure it won an award because that's I used to be a nerd and go through that award-winning section in the library. So I'm sure that's why I read it. But So it's called A Proud Taste for Scarlet and Miniver. So that's the only fictional one that I think I would, um, I'm going to call out. But I'll just move on to. Okay, so um, Susan mentioned it earlier. Eleanor of Aquitaine by Alison Weir. It's a life. So that's how you'll know it's not the fictional one. I really liked this one. As a biography, um, plenty of sources in the back that you can go find if you want. And then also The Life and Times of Eleanor of Aquitaine by Earl Rice is another biography. Mm -hmm. Yes, I liked both of those. Although if I had to pick a favorite, I think it would have been um, the Alison Weir book. So I totally agree with you on that one. And I liked Eleanor of Aquitaine and The Four Kings by Amy Kelly. And Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queen and Rebel by Jean Fiore. Okay, and I liked Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queen of the Troubadours by Jean Markale. It's not all that linear, but I picked up a lot from it. I'll call out this one, The World of Eleanor of Aquitaine, Literature and Society in Southern France by Marcus Bell and Catherine Legrand. And it is a collection of essays. So they're actually the editors. Essays and literature from that time period that kind of gives you more of a big picture. Also, I read some biographies of Henry Plantagenet, as you do. And then there is a book called 1215, The Year of Magna Carta by Danny Danziger. And you should know that King John, who we have left in charge as we've left Eleanor, King John was the king that was required, forced to sign the Magna Carta, part of which inspired our own constitution. So after the Angevin Empire has fallen apart, what happens? And that's a little tiny, easy-to-read book that talks about what happens then. Oh, I've talked about this book before. It's called It Ended Badly, 13 of the Worst Breakups in History by Jennifer Wright. And it's a lighthearted look of relationships throughout history. Um, if you like us, I think you, I think this is exactly what I said the last time I talked about it. But if you like us, you would like this book. They're short. It's fun. It's just a fun read, I thought. I liked it. I actually think I'm going to have to go buy it because this might be the third time I've checked it out of the library. <laughs> I think it's time. I'm going to I'm going to make the dive in on that. I do have a kids book. It's a series that I really liked. It's called 
Rulers in Their Times, Eleanor of Aquitaine and the High Middle Ages by Nancy Plain. And there's lots of illustrations, actual art from the time. It's, it's simple to read. I, I middle grade, I would think. I, I really, there was enough detail in this to make it different than a lot of kids' books. So that's why I really like this one. And then as to movies, similar to the way I did books, I am just going to link you to the IMDb page where there is an infinite scroll of movies in which Eleanor of Aquitaine appears. The main one that everybody knows is The Lion in Winter from 1968, starring Katherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine, which takes up after the death of young Henry. So it takes up at least two-thirds, even more, through her life. So you're not going to see any of her childhood, etc. in that. But um, it has some good quotes in there, like, uh, <laughs> like King Henry says, Give me a little peace. And Eleanor's like, A little? Why so modest? How about eternal peace? <laughs> yeah, this movie is full of zingers, but it's not a comedy. Like, it's not like it's it takes a long time to get through this movie. It's an exposition, and I can see why. But, like, I kind of am like, uh. There's people. This is their favorite movie. I was looking online. Guess who else's favorite movie? President Bartlett from The West Wing. This is his favorite movie of all time. See? There you go. I mean, there's it's it's a great movie. It's just if you compare it to, like, our modern, fast-paced kind of movies, this is not it. You're going to be bored. But if you listen, there's great lines. And it was actually remade in 2003, I think it was for Showtime, with Glenn Close as Eleanor and Patrick Stewart as Henry. Um, it won a Golden Globe for Best Actress for Glenn Close. And I did have to buy The Lion in Winter because my library didn't have it, which was shocking to me. Now The Lion in Winter is on YouTube. In its entirety. That's how I saw it. Oh, seriously? Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Well, I now have this copy of The Lion in Winter. Maybe I should give it away. I don't think I'll ever watch it again. In the show notes, I put a compare and contrast of one scene between the Catherine Hepburn version and the Glenn Close version. So you can watch and see the difference. It's exactly the same scene. Nice. So. So other things, wide-ranging, I suppose, that I have. I have, um, we talked about Grandpa's poems in the first episode, so I've linked you to some of those. Also, a page at the Louvre about the crystal vase that we decided was actually authorized to be called a vase that Eleanor had given to Louis and Louis had given to the Chapel of Saint-Denis. Much art I'll just put on the Pinterest board of the Queen Eleanor and Fair Rosamond variety. There is, oh, it's really sad. I just didn't want to get into it. For those of you that like horror, there is a graphic description of exactly what happened to Thomas Beckett that I can, I can link you to it. Eyewitness to history. Also a little nerding out about the Magna Carta and the Constitution. There is an author of one of the fiction books. Her name is Sharon K. Penman, and she went off on a tour following the footsteps of Eleanor of Aquitaine, and her travelogue is on her blog, so I've linked to that. Fontrevoza Hotel now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so we can give you that webpage. Um, it's in French. I don't know. I didn't see a translation. I think it's all in French. Well, you can translate it. Google translates it for you. So those are all the far-reaching things that I kind of have. Oh, well, and we had talked about History of the Crusades podcast in yes. the 
first episode and the second episode, which should tell you that you should probably go listen to the History of the Crusades podcast, if only for these two crusades, because it gives you a lot more information. In Our Time had an episode about the Crusades and Henry and the whole anarchy, which and they have all kinds of stuff that's related to British history. So that's always a good one. And on Facebook, this is a real, you know how I'd love to find um, active accounts of people that are pretending to be somebody. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't have, I guess it must be an assignment for a lot of classes because there's some that last only, you know, six months and then they're done. But on Facebook, there's one called Grumpy Eleanor of Aquitaine and she's quite hysterical. Actually, I don't even know if it's a man or a woman. I didn't look that far. So you should follow that. It's, it's fun to get those little things through your, you know, your Facebook feed once in a while. Oh, wait, I have one more. I have oh. one more. My favorite book of all time is only... <laughs> tangentially related to this subject but it takes place during the anarchy so if you want to see how chaotic it was for the average person to live during the anarchy ken follett i know he usually writes spy novels etc no no he wrote all those other ones to pay for this one <laughs> dream of a book it's called pillars of the earth all about the building of a cathedral during the time of the anarchy or around the anarchy I heard a lot of people recommending that. I haven't read it yet. I guess I'm going to go check it out. It is a daunting book. The paperback itself is well over two inches thick. Maybe oh. three. Oh, uh-oh. <laughs> what have I done? So, in closing, as that brings us to the end of our coverage of Eleanor of Aquitaine, I would like to end with a quote from our favorite biography of Eleanor of Aquitaine, the one written by Alison Weir. Eleanor was important in her own day for who she was. But her fame rests largely on what she did and on the controversial role she played during a long career on the political stage. Denied for so long the exercise of power for which she had a natural aptitude, she came into her own at an age when most women were either dead or long in retirement and ruled as capable as any man. Remarkable in a period when females were relegated to a servile role, she was an incomparable woman. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. A special thanks to our listeners who've sponsored us through our very feminine donate button at thehistorychicks.com. We really appreciate your help. We can't say thank you enough times. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The closing music is Symphonic Theme by Rob Vandenberg. And this week's challenge is tweet a quote from a famous woman to Susan at the History Chicks with an X.